If you want to take your Bibles, turn with me to Titus chapter 1. As you are turning there and finding your place, it is the third Sunday of the month, and so children's church, and so if you are sixth grade or below, you are dismissed to go, and you see stands right over here, organ side. We'll give kids a few minutes to make their way while you're turning to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, it's a passage we we kicked off last week, uh, our uh, new series, uh, Working Our Way Through, Paul's letter to another pastor, a pastor he raised up, trained up, left on the island of Crete uh, to continue to strengthen the church and then uh, plant new churches, and the book of Titus, the letter of Titus, is, is intended to, to provide Titus with ongoing instruction about how to continue to set things in order to ensure that the churches are properly ordered, that they are biblically ordered, that, that whether it's their, their leadership, their understanding of the gospel, their application of the gospel, uh, their, their confrontation with religious leaders, all, all of these elements are rightly aligned and, uh, and that they are continuing to fulfill the task. And so we'll, we'll be taking however long it takes, um, beginning in 2023, all right, and ending when we get to the end of chapter 3. And that's, that's how you'll know we're done. Uh, you'll know, you'll say, Pastor, when are we going to be done with Titus? When we get to chapter 3, verse 15, all right? Then we will be done. But Titus chapter 1, we're going to read again, text that we kicked off with, Last week, but we'll only read verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began but has in due time manifested His Word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. What is our purpose? Why do we exist? Why are we here? What what is the point of human existence? Uh, To ask the question, what is our purpose, is to ask perhaps one of the trendier questions that have been asked over the last 30 years. There's no small amount of discussion on this question. Why are we here? What, what have we been made for? And it's understandable why people would ask the question. I mean, unless you're like some kind of just really rigid, hardcore kind of atheist that has no, you know, divine concept at all. I mean, everybody else 
cares about this question. If you were to do a quick search on Amazon, finding life's purpose, you'll get over 4,000 hits. Now, some of, you know, most of those are going to be books. Who knows what else they could be? You know you've probably searched Amazon before. But still, there are undoubtedly thousands of options. Of course, Google that same question, and it's nearly uncountable, right? It's in the millions and millions of options that you would get. And this question has been asked both in, the, of course, the secular culture and in the Christian world. It has been a popular topic, and there's been a number of books written trying to help us find our purpose. Unfortunately, for sure when it comes to what's written out in the secular world, it, it probably amounts to nothing more than just like you know, some kind of self-improvement, self-help kind of talk. And even in the Christian world, uh, my concern is the vast majority of it is at best problematic and at worst downright heretical and dangerous. There's been a lot of ink spilled. What is our purpose? I'm concerned, though, that we don't have nearly enough by way of answer. In fact, really, what all this talk has descended into, I think, over the years, is what is my purpose? What fulfills me? What will make me happy? So much so that, that it kind of skews into this line of, I need to find what would ever make me happiest in life, and I'm only going to give my time and resources to that. So, like, let's say that a pastor wants to not be a pastor and start a coffee shop called Grounded Faith. Come on, it's a good idea, all right? Or how about a restaurant called The Shepherd's Table, all right? We're cooking now. Or maybe a small farm called Fields of Harvest. Yes, your pastor's thought of these things. Don't worry. I'm not quitting. I just mean, this is the kind of thing this is descended into. Figuring out our, our niche, right? Now, really, what, what jazzes us? What sparks us? What gets us going? And I'm afraid what this has done is it has only continued. It has exacerbated a problem already existing, and that is that the vast majority of this stuff encourages us to be really self-centered. I know, I know there's books out there, especially the Christian ones, that may begin with some acknowledgement that it's not about you, but then we'll spend 200 pages talking about you, talking about me, what I want. Is this really the most helpful way to explore the topic? Well, I don't think so. Now, I want to go ahead and head something off I don't, I don't want you to think, well, I'm going to go to the other end of this, all right? If I'm concerned that too many people are only talking about what makes you happy and leaves you feeling fulfilled, that instead today's sermon is about how to arrange your life so that you're miserable and feel worthless, all right? That's not going to make it among the most popular sermons pastor ever preached, okay? So we're not doing that. I do understand why we need to understand this concept. The good news is, though, we don't have to go to one of those books being sold on Amazon. We don't have to find a blog about it. We don't have to listen to a podcast about it because the Bible has given us clarity. 
And I think one of the places we can go to discern what does God expect of His people, what is God's design for us, is these opening verses of Titus. Titus provides really helpful instruction to us. And really, Paul does this in nearly every single one of his letters, that that when Paul begins this section of greeting, it follows this form. This is pretty standard, right? Uh, Paul names himself as the one writing the letter, and then at the end of the greeting, he speaks to Titus. It's addressed to Titus. This was a common form, by the way, in the Roman Greek world. There's nothing unusual about that, except this. Paul, in giving these greetings, in almost every case, not every single one, but almost every one of these, Paul seeds the opening greeting with key theological ideas that he'll expound upon in the rest of the letter. Most famous one of these is the book of Romans. Romans is Paul's longest greeting. Do you know what the second longest greeting in Paul's letters is? You may have guessed it. Titus. It's interesting that in a three-chapter book, I mean, Romans is 16 chapters. We get it, all right? There's a lot of verbiage there. Three chapters. His longest, second longest greeting is here. And I think he does us a real service. He encourages us here to understand how God has designed His people, and He does so in this way. What He does is He provides us the much bigger picture. Rather than focusing on this question from my perspective, what does God have of me? What am I supposed to… Rather than being just purely self-centered, that instead Paul presents us with the bigger picture that we should develop. That if we're going to get our purpose right, we need to understand who we are in relation to who God is. I know it's really basic, but in many ways that's the best kind of theology to get us back to what is most foundational. And Paul does this in these opening verses. Paul provides a context. Paul understands himself his design, his function in in the body of Christ, his function in relation to God, in relation to God's mission. Paul does this in just these first few verses. And so that's what we're going to begin looking at this morning, taking a look at verses 1 through 4. Again, last week we kind of did some introductory stuff, looked at some main themes. Now we're going to get into the text itself. So Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, by the way, You've got notes on the back of your bulletin. If you'd like to fill in some blanks, you'll be able to fill in one this morning. All right? So so if if we look at at Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Paul offered his customary greeting, which affirmed his position and purpose in God's kingdom. I think what we see here is that we can be a healthy church. We are healthy followers of Christ when we understand God's design for us, when we understand ourselves first in relation to God, God's greater purposes, who God is and God's greater purposes in this world, this means our theology begins with God, which is a great place to begin because the Bible begins that way. Have you ever noticed that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 does not begin, and this is the story of Adam and Eve. Genesis 1-1 begins, in the beginning, God. The Bible is radically God-centered. 
And so as we think about these things, we should be as well. All right, so what, what is that? What does that mean then? What, what is our design? How do we understand then the role that God has for us? We understand our role when we understand, number one, God's authority. God's authority. I, I think I have said over the years, I've made a statement such, such as this, one of the most important decisions you can make in your life is deciding who's in charge. This is hard for us because we like to think it's us. We organize our lives in such a way to ensure that it is us until we realize we have any number of examples where often we're not good at being in charge of our lives. what, What I love about how this begins is that Paul first and foremost establishes himself in relationship to God's authority. Now, and when I say this, by the way, I mean God's absolute authority. To speak of God as having authority is, is to say He has the right to command of you whatever He wants to command of you. God is in charge, and I am expected to submit. I know these are all hard words, right? Authority, command, submission. It's like I'm trying to offend people. Maybe, all right? Maybe a little. This is how he's establishing this letter. He's clearly establishing his own calling, his understanding of his work to God. Rather than it being about what I love, what I want, my dreams, my passions, these are not my first priority. My first priority is to be submissive to God, to his commands, and his design. Now, Paul does this. He draws our attention to God's authority, not explicitly, but with the use of two words. Now, look look again at verse 1, and you look at that, and some of you are thinking, oh, I know what two words. Two words that establish Paul and his, his coming under God's authority. It's the word bondservant, and it's the word apostle. Nope. Those aren't the two words. See, what you've done is you have run past the first word to get to the second. But look again. What's the first word of the letter to Titus? Paul. And now you're thinking, uh uh-oh. Is he literally going to preach this book by talking about every single word that's in the text? (laughs) Come on, man. Paul, we got it. I I would say this is critically important. These first two words that Paul uses, Paul, bondservant. Now, we will get to apostle because that does describe another feature of another point, but it's a separate point. I think it's fascinating that before Paul gets to his credentials, which, by the way, were significant, right? Right? Paul is the celebrity of church history. There's no one else that compares to him. He was a big deal in his own day. His enemies knew him. The, Roman, the Greek Roman government knew him. Right? The church knew him. But Paul does not begin his resume by touting his credentials. Instead, Paul bonds her. 
Now, so here, here's what I want to do for a few minutes. Uh, in all seriousness, I do want to think about that first word. Because we are so familiar with that name, I know that a lot of people here recognize that's not his given name, right? Uh, he hasn't always been called Paul. His mama didn't call him Paul, right? All right, Granny didn't call him Paul. Uh, his cousins didn't call him Paul. No, we know that he had a, another name to begin with. That, that before we get here, now, now he's had this name for 30-some years at this point, but 30 years earlier, his name was Saul. And the first time he shows up is in Acts chapter 7, after one of the church's first deacons, Stephen, preaches a profound, powerful, and finger-pointing message of the gospel. <laughs> That clearly lands with the religious leaders because they become so enraged at his preaching that they, they drag him out and they pick up stones and they stone him to death. The very end, though, of that story tells us that a man named Saul gladly held their cloaks. It's the first time we encounter him standing there. I don't know, with an armful of cloaks, all right? These guys wanted to get loosened up, all right? They wanted to make sure they were unencumbered. This is how enraged the gospel made them. Which, by the way, we should appreciate that can happen. You do know that the lost world hates the gospel. And we should expect that proper preaching of the gospel will sometimes draw the ire and anger of the lost world. And so here is, here is Paul, Saul holding these coats, doing so gladly. The very next chapter, chapter 8, then tells us whether he already occupied this position or had risen up among the ranks. Here, here was, a, here was a, a man who was, who was educated, come, who, who, was, who had all the credentials of being a Jew of Jews. He even himself described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, trained by the best. I mean, he was built to be a profound and powerful leader of the Jewish people, a teacher of the law, and he gets promoted to chief persecuting officer, CPO. All right? The, he, this becomes his job. And Acts chapter 8 tells us about it, that then he sets out on a course of intense and at times violent persecution against the church. He drags people out of their homes and takes them to prison. He, he hears, he gets word of pockets of Christians, of locations, of converts, and off he goes with letters from religious leaders and everything. This was his job and he was good at it. In fact, Paul will later tell us that he was confident. He was doing that which honored and glorified God. Believed it. Until one day, on the road to Damascus, see, he'd, he'd gotten wind of another group of Christians, and he was all too eager to go on another business trip. And his purpose, on the way to Damascus, he's thinking through his procedures, I'm certain, ready then when he gets there to, to sniff them out, drag them out, 
crying kids clinging to their ankles and everything. He didn't care. But on that trip, before he gets to Damascus, a blinding light, a light that then left him blind for some amount of time appears, and and he is confronted with the risen Lord. Jesus asked him the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Through this interaction, we don't know perhaps all that was said to him, but we do know that three things happen here. First, Saul is converted. Saul believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He believes in the crucified, resurrected Lord. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. This is what happens. He believes. And just by the way, as another side note and encouragement, I remember hearing this in my New Testament class, uh, as we are sharing the gospel, do not miss the Paul and the Saul, all right? I know maybe you think you've got hard cases in your life, but just trust the gospel is powerful enough to save even the hardest of cases. If you want, by the way, a point of comparison of how hard Paul would have been to the gospel, think of someone, now I know this may be dating me, all right, but some hopefully will know the name. Think of someone like Osama bin Laden. Paul was more like him than he was like you when he was Saul. In looks, in commitment to destroying Christians, all right? But the power of the gospel transformed him. So he's converted. Second thing that happens to Paul is his mission changes. Rather than now being a destroyer of the church, he becomes the greatest architect of it on earth, right? Rather than being one who had a zeal for persecuting Christians, he now has a zeal to pour his life into them. It is a radical transformation. At the same time, he is also told that a part of this mission will involve his own suffering. He will bear in his body the marks of suffering for the gospel, the marks of Christ, there, there will be consequences for how he spent the first part of his life. And so he, he will be persecuted in light of the persecution he had unleashed. So these are two things, but then there was a third thing that happened to him. Jesus changed his name. He changed his name from Saul to Paul. Now, this is not without precedent in the Bible, Right? Not that it happens all the time, but there are some other examples of this. Abram and Sarai are changed to Abraham and Sarah, right? We know their grandson, Jacob, his name is changed to Israel. We get to the New Testament and we find Jesus, after an interaction with Simon, his name is changed to Peter. And then we have this one. Saul has changed to Paul. Now, you might think, all right, Pastor, well, why is this a point? I mean, you are literally taking the entire sermon just to talk about one dude's name, all right? That's what you're doing. And so you better deliver here. You better land this plane here in a minute. All right. Think about these two names. The name Saul takes us back to Old Testament and Israel's first king. Now, the name itself means like asked for or prayed for. The name itself did not necessarily bear meaning other than Israel had asked for a king like the other nations had a king, and they got just that in Saul. He was tall. He was a fine-looking man, all right? He was a terrible king. Okay, 
So they got a king just like every other king. And Israel then is given the portrait of another king when David comes along. But still, even though Saul was not a great king, though, though he, had his, he had some shining moments, but he had some really dark ones as well. Saul still is an important figure historically in God's work with his people. The first king of Israel. And so that is a regal name, right? A royal name. To be named Saul is to be given the name of king. Don't even change the name. Change one letter. Go from an S to a P, from Saul to Paul. Do you know what Paul's name means? Little, small, of no consequence. Is that not fascinating? That when Jesus changes his name, here was a guy who was about to be the next best thing in Judaism with a regal name, with all of the appropriate credentials that he could ever need to rise among the ranks, to reach the highest of highs in the position that he had been given. He has one encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ and everything changes to such a degree that he goes from a regal name to small. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not Jesus being snarky with Paul, all right? This this is not Jesus kind of making him now live with something that's diminutive. Instead, Paul would now bear upon himself for the rest of his life, in his very name, Paul would be reminded of who he is in relation to who God is. From now on, there would be no doubt Who's in charge? Literally, if you translated, if you wanted to translate Titus 1 literally, the first word that the Apostle Paul, the church planter of the day, the man who almost single-handedly converts the entirety of the country of Greece, that the first word in this letter, one of his last, small, small, that he viewed himself in light of who God was. God gave him a name that would make this relationship clear. Now, this is where my sanctified imagination can run away with me, all right? I just wonder, though, I wonder, how long did this take? Paul wrote a lot of letters, not just the ones in the Bible, right? We know he wrote a lot of letters. This was a big deal for Paul. I wonder if it's like you writing 2023, all right? I wonder, did it take some time, right? Paul first writing a letter, did he ever refer to himself as Saul? I wonder, though, if right away from the very beginning that Paul only ever referred to himself from that point on as Paul. And I even wonder, when he wrote this name down, when he wrote it down here, writing this letter to Titus, I wonder if there was any part of him for any moment that went back to that day on the road to Damascus. That every time he wrote his name, He was reminded this was not his given name, not his earthly given name. This was given to him by his commander, by his king. This was the name that he would bear that reflected his call. It's profound change. And one that I I think speaks to this, that even from the use of his own name, Paul is reminded of God's authority. But then that's followed by that second word, a bondservant. 
That's a significant word as well. It's used a handful of times in the New Testament. A bondservant, by the way, was not just a regular servant or a regular slave. A bondservant was somebody who had come to the end of his required time of service. This is laid out, by the way, in the law. Had come to the end of his, reti- his, his required time of service and could go free if he wanted, but instead commits himself to lifelong servitude to that master. That's what he's done. That's what he's saying. A bondservant, that's what a bondservant is saying. I will forever, for the rest of my life, be in service to this master. Once you declared yourself as a bondservant, there was even a mark put in your ear to indicate it, all right? Once you did that, that was forever. That was now an unbreakable covenant. You were now forever tied. I guess as long as that master was alive, you were tied to that master. So Paul uses this term about himself a couple of times. Peter describes himself this way. And Jesus' two half-brothers that are mentioned in the Bible, who both have letters, James and Jude, they both refer to themselves as bondservants. So again, right here from the beginning, we see a man who had all of the status and celebrity that you could imagine, who had power, who had influence, but instead, how does he understand himself? As under the command of his master. Paul only ever saw himself as a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. A forever, lifetime slave to Christ. And I would contend that because of the nature of the word bondservant, Paul has done so willingly and joyfully. This is, his, this is how he understands his purpose in relation to God's authority. Again, I don't think we can overestimate this idea. I don't think we can stress it too much. This is fundamental to who Paul is, to the rest of this letter, to understanding even our own purpose, to understand that we first and foremost come under the authority of the triune God. See, Paul realized early on his life did not belong to him. Your life does not belong to you. You are not the master. You are not the commander. You are not the ruler of your life. You're not the boss. You're not the one in charge. Your life has been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. But let me suggest, that's the best it can possibly be. You don't want to take the reins of your own life. Again, I know I kicked it off this way, but let's end just being offensive. You've made horrible decisions in your life. I don't mean all of them, all right? But there have been. When you took the reins... My guess is, those days when you took the reins of your own life and presumed to know more than the triune sovereign God, my guess is those same days turned into some of your biggest regrets. Now, the truth is, if we want to be faithful to our purpose, we understand it in relation to God, who He is. Like Paul said, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But perhaps the most striking words, Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss 
for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul understood who was in charge. His life was driven by it. How do you see yourself? I mean, honestly, I can't answer that question for you. You will have to do it. Who is in charge? Who is the authority? I think sometimes church, and here's what's happened, the evangelical world has done a great job over the last 50 years of sanctifying self-centeredness. They have sanctified self-centeredness. They've almost made it almost a, a, a moral imperative. They've made it a virtue. And the truth is, though, we need to see ourselves in light of who God is. Is that what you do? Do you want the blessings of salvation without its responsibilities? Do you want its position without the pursuit? Of course, to some, I would make this appeal. How do you answer that question if it is not, first and foremost, you have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, that you have, you have come to a place in your life where you are not pursuing your own means of salvation. Have you done that? Have, have you confessed that you are a sinner? Have you confessed that you are unable to save yourself? Have you confessed that as a result of that, that you are separated from God, have you then confessed that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead? Have you asked God to save you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done for you? Have you trusted in Him? If you have not, I'd implore you to do so. At the close of the service, pastors will be down front. We'd love a chance to talk with you more about what it means to believe the Gospel. That's where it begins. Trusting in Christ. But then I would contend what that means for us If we want to get this right, then we submit ourselves to the authority of God. If you find yourself struggling against that, be reminded, though your name has perhaps not been changed like this, the given name to a new name, you have very much been changed. You've gone from being a child of wrath to being a child of God. You've gone from being a son and daughter of darkness to being sons and daughters of the light. You've gone from death into life. You've gone from down in the pit to being raised up into the heavenly places. Oh, your name has been changed. So church, let us then live under the authority of our God. It's the best way to live life, I promise you. And it's the way to live life for His greater glory. Let's stand together and I'm going to pray. After I pray then, we will sing. And we will sing once again about the power and the goodness of this gospel. This gospel, one and only gospel that saves us. Father God, we do thank You for the gathering of Your church. We thank You for the opportunity to sing and to pray, to give, to come under Your Word. And now, Father, as we again respond to Your Word in song, we pray that Your Word would be brought to bear in our lives, that You, by Your Spirit, would use it to continue to work in us, making us the people You've designed for us to be. God, may we be rightly related to You, You as our King, You as the authority. And may that drive us 
May that determine how we see ourselves and our relationship to your mission and our responsibility in this world, that you might be most glorified by your people. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.